Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll is presented without the musical interludes that some of you may have become accustomed to. Sorry about that. We are fairly certain that were we to play even small bits of Rolling Stone songs under conversation that their team of crack lawyers would hit us with a big old stack of cease and desist orders. Without further delay, here's this week's episode. Welcome to the latest episode of your favorite new podcast, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coob, a.k.a. The Doc, and with me is my partner in crime, Marcus in the Darkest. Hello, Ray. Baby steps when you do a podcast. We've learned a lot about baby steps, right? <laughs> yes, we have. Well, I can tell you, this is another one of those baby steps. Episode 10, my friend. We're going to explore something fun this week. Yeah, we're finding our group. I think we're going to talk about a band that is arguably one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. They're always in the conversation. Right. It's between them and the band we mentioned in episode two that hit the 100th podcast. Yeah, those Beatles. Yes. Them Fab Four. Another baby step for us as we try to uh, establish our imbalanced history of rock and roll in podcast form. So let's talk about the fantastic Rolling Stones. Uh, They've been called the greatest rock and roll band in the world, and they've tried to live up to that title for almost 60 years now. Um, You know, we're at 56 and counting in Stones history. So this week we thought we'd go through the decades darkly and kind of outline life with the Stones since the early 60s. We talked before about their involvement in the Blues Incorporated, Alexis Corner, Cyril Davies world of the early 60s. And one of the things that's blown your mind is the social scene back then that they were part of, right? I can't even begin to tell you how crazy it is to try to wrap your head around the fact that like those cats, Ginger Baker, Eric Clapton, would all go hang out drink beers, and watch blues musicians together. Some of them studying to be accountants, some of them studying to be architects, teachers, whatever. Jagger studied economics. No wonder he's such a good businessman. There you go. But uh, that was the uh, the background, the atmosphere that uh, created a lot of great music that we talked about on the Yardbirds family tree. Um, there's these two kids, they're from Dartford, Kent, and they know each other because everybody around schools knows each other. But as happenstance would have it, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards met one day on a train platform and recognized each other. And can you imagine, though, that's how the, that rock and roll connection came to be and 
and it started because of records, right? We were talking about yeah. that. What record you got? Yeah, what's what that record? under your arm, man? You know, oh, can I come back to your house and listen to Chuck Berry and Muddy Waters? That kind of stuff. Um, they connected, and then, of course, they ended up uh, jamming with their buddy Dick Taylor, who would go on to be the first Rolling Stones bassist. Uh, they called themselves the Blues Boys. Perfect, right? Yep. All those British guys had names like that, like the Blues Boys or the Blues Cats, like the Birmingham Blues Cats or whatever. But they they wanted, were those types of names. Yeah, because they all wanted to be old American black men. And so they named themselves in the appropriate manner. Um, and so they recorded some songs. I don't know what they recorded on back then, probably a little reel to reel, and sent them off to Alexis Corner. Remember Alexis, yeah. him and Cyril Davies, and uh, we yeah. were talking about them before. And uh, so that's how they met Blues Incorporated, where they met Charlie, where they met Brian Jones and Ian Stewart, and how they all started jamming around and getting to know each other uh, was through that whole connection back to the Yardbirds. Again, crazy to think that the Rolling Stones formation is part of the Yardbirds family tree as well. So you got the, um, the Blues Boys over here. And then you also have uh, Brian Jones, who called himself Elmo because it sounded more bluesy than Brian, and uh, Ian Stewart. And together they put a little ad in this magazine called the Jazz Weekly, which was, I guess, the hit paper back then. And who do you think applied to that ad? Maybe a couple guys we're talking about today. <laughs> <laughs> right? It was Keith and Mick and, uh, and Dick Taylor. And uh, they got together and they started, I think they had their first get together. And uh, shortly thereafter, Ian Stewart, who would be a large figure in Stone's history for years, uh, began to refer to them as my little showers of shit. And uh, can you imagine that? Okay, my little showers of shit, it's time for rehearsal. And it just was, I can't even imagine the atmosphere in the room. Why would he call them his little showers of shit? I think he saw the potential for the dirty, filthy bastards that they've become. You know, he saw that they were, they had something there and he was older. Remember, Stu was older. And so, but he had the unbelievable ability to dominate 88 keys. And uh, that's what made him a fixture with the stones for um, the rest of his life. Basically the guy they had on drums was named Tony Chapman. I don't know anything about him. Um, but they say, Mick and Keith being they, say that the band officially became the Stones when Charlie joined, which was January 63, and you see things start to happen there, you know? Uh, them early shows, they get their first gig at the marquee, and they make some noise, and then they uh, kind of work their way uh, from that into uh, their uh, residency at the Crawdaddy in Richmond, and that starts all every Sunday afternoon, the place filled with girls, the, you know, they get the fire hoses out afterwards because they had to wash down the aisles. It was pretty incredible stuff. And that's when they became the Rolling Stones, because initially uh, in an article they were called the Rolling Stones. With the apostrophe. With the apostrophe. Again, Elmo in play there, right? Yep. And uh, in May 63, and that's only a few months after Charlie comes in, uh, they get the residency at the Crawdaddy, and Andrew Lou Oldham, Oldham comes in as their manager, and he was only 19 when he became their manager, uh, uh, Brian Epstein protege, and they believed that he believed in them, and that was all I guess they needed to get that thing going there. Now, I don't know whether you realize this or not, because we know how stones are just themselves in every way now, but in the beginning, Oldham tried to get them to all put on the suits. If you look at the early pictures, the pub shots, uh, even a couple album covers, they're all in suits and stuff. And eventually, I think they told him to piss off with that. 
You know? They had that early Beatles like schoolboy look. Yeah, well, that they were the big influence. Everybody wanted to have that kind of success, and they yeah. thought they had to dress a certain way. The animals were another one who didn't dig it at all. Yeah. I would love to talk to Eric yeah. Burden about that part of things. Yeah. So, but in 1963, you know, the man who turned them the little his little showers of shit was told that he just didn't fit into the image that Oldham was forming for the Rolling Stones, and he would remain with them on stage and a live player with them all the way through his life. But that was it. That was the way it went from there. It's one of those things that I guess it's kind of like a Pete Best kind of thing, you know, where the decision is made and nobody really thought much of it. And of course, uh, Wyman would join and they would really become the Stones. Uh, when Char- when Charlie came in and all these things falling in line uh, through that part of the 60s. And it kind of set up, Stu kind of set up the tradition that uh, they would go for the best keyboard player they could get, you know? Yeah. Think about all the guys who played with the Stones. We were talking uh, about Billy Preston, but yeah. it's, uh, it's Nicky Hopkins and Ian McLaughlin and Jack Nietzsche. And these guys could play. Oh, yeah. And they would come in and help them on stage and really fill out the stage sound. And that continued all the way through uh, with Stewart until he passed away in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, even today with uh, you know Chuck Lavelle, man, he's been out there with them for how long now? I think since 1982. Oh, so wow. that's, a, that's a while. Is that about when? Is that about when Stewart left the band or passed away because... I remember when he passed away in the 80s. I can't remember when, but you said that there were all these other keyboardists. Does that mean that if he was away was away doing his own thing, they would bring in these other people? You know, I think they would line everybody up at the beginning of the tour, and I think Stu always was pretty much there. And then they would also start having, you know, like, you know, if you can get Nicky Hopkins to play with Ian Stewart, how can you do better for a, p- a keyboard sound, piano sounds, That's true. than having those guys together? And he worked with them all the way through to 85 uh, when he passed away, and there was a whole tribute to him. He's really part of the soul of what the Stones were. So they get into the 60s. They start thinking about what's going on across the pond because, hey, look at what's going on over there for the Beatles. So they they get get over to America. They start playing shows. They start making impressions. They get on Ed Sullivan, and uh, that's where the famous uh, let's spend some time together version of let's spend the night together version uh, came up. It was because Sullivan would not let them infer that they were going to spend the night with each other and that, you know, being... You know, 1960s, things were a little bit different in that regard. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, that got them into America. It got them into every TV set. You know, Sullivan had that power for for bands. And uh, that's kind of set the stage for the rest of the 60s for the Stones. Do you remember hearing the Rolling Stones on the radio at this time? Because... I wasn't born yet. I was born in 66, so I didn't hear the Rolling Stones at that time. I think the first time I heard them on the radio was probably Satisfaction. It was probably pretty early on because I remember, I do remember that I annoyed the shit out of people because for like the next two, three weeks, I walked around going, and that gets annoying when you're a little kid with your parents and your sister really quick. I'll just say Mom and dad surely unhappy about but that was when I got my first taste of what's that, you know, yeah. and um, and then I, over time I really became more of a digging into uh, all the nooks and crannies, and it, it took me time to get back to discover all the the early recordings and everything, and and learn about them, and you know. So they get in the mid '60s, they got a number one hit. They're torn everywhere. They're 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 rolling, man. They are literally the Rolling Stones. They they don't slow down. Uh, they start to set the pace, the jet set lifestyle. And then 1967 arrives, 
And can you, you know, I know you were, you weren't yet here, but you know, in 1967 brought in all these great sounds and things that yeah. we hadn't heard before. It was and, a big year for rock and roll. Yeah. Think about it. Sergeant Pepper, uh, Jimmy debuts, yeah. right? And all these different sounds that were coming out of rock and roll that nobody had heard before somehow was all just happening by, you know, photosynthesis. I don't know what the hell caused yeah. it, but just living. And, um, the stones kind of got caught up in that. They tried to be psychedelic, and it didn't really work for them, even though they got some nice songs off of uh, by their Satanic Majesty's request. And they also had that cool cover, which was the first oh, time yeah. anybody that I remembered put a 3D picture on the cover of an album. It was pretty cool for the time. So they tried to be that, but they didn't really succeed the way that others were in that psychedelic Sgt. Pepper, everybody happy, peace, and love kind of vibe. So did they like go to the drawing board and say, hey, this psychedelic thing didn't work for us. We have to get dirtier because we're not schoolboys either. I don't know if it was that official, but something like that happened. Don't you think if you think about what the song sounded like in 67 on Satanic Majesty's Request and then you hear Beggar's Banquet, something different, right? It's really more the sound that the Stones would develop as that trademark Stones sound from Beggar's Banquet moving forward. And um, at the same time, you're starting to have some troubles in paradise, as it were, with the Rolling Stones because Brian Jones, uh, who probably today would have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, had some real issues. Uh, in his book, Keith Richards talks about uh, violence towards women where they had to intercede a couple times, things like that that got bad. So and going into Beggar's Banquet, where some of the performances that Jones gave were brilliant, he was also fighting his personal demons and drugs and everything else that was going on in his life. So it explains maybe the fact that his bipolar disorder, all the stuff, shit going on in his head is yeah. why he started doing drugs to calm his brain. It could have been. I think a lot of people thought that uh, that is a solution uh, when they when they don't know when it's undiagnosed and they don't know what it is. It's, it's not an easy thing to comprehend unless you've experienced or you're close to someone who has. And um, I do believe that uh, were we more advanced medically about all these things, uh, back in that time, he might have been properly diagnosed and medicated and ha- gone on to have a, a, the rest of his creative career without his untimely death. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the Brian Jones story, it's a sad its a sad tale in, in the history of the Stones. Yeah, because, because it continues to um, devolve. He continues to spiral. He shows up for the sessions for Let It Bleed and barely does anything. And by then they realized they needed to get some help. Uh, so they brought in some people like uh, Dave Mason helped to fill up some of the spots. And they had other studio musicians that came in. Keith took on more of a double tracking role. And it got to the point where they knew that they had to had talk to him. And they and, and he had to leave. It was there was no way that it was going to work with them there. So they were going to try to make it work without him because things were not going well. And he had bought the house that was owned by A. A. Milne, who wrote Winnie the yeah. Pooh, and he actually died in the pool in the backyard just weeks, months maybe after leaving the Stones. Yeah. You know, we've talked about this a little bit. It's hard to tell what happened because yeah. there was so many theories uh, about jealous. Um, ex-boyfriends uh, a dispute with the contractor who was doing work at his house randomness or just the old possibility that he overdosed couldn't get out of the pool and drown yeah. you know so 
tragic. It, one of the great tragedies. It was a, it, England was like it was the number one story in England for for weeks because you know this is part of rock and roll royalty in their country. Oh, yeah. And it happens there at Milne's house. Just terrible, terrible stuff. Yeah, who's a legendary author in England. Yes. So you have all these weird coincidences, and of course people are going to freak out in the conspiracy theories or the weird, bizarre theories are going to happen. But I would say drugs passing out in the pool is the most likely yeah. realistic culprit. But I, again, we don't know we weren't no, there. No, most people uh, probably agree with you, though. McTaylor comes into the fold officially. And one of the first things they do is they go to Hyde Park to honor. They were having going to have a concert, free concert there. It's a legendary show. And they go, and they have the show, and it's Mick Taylor's coming out party. And I can you imagine the pressure on a kid joining the Rolling Stones in full? Th- they're already at full uh, gallop. You know, there's yeah. no slowing down, and they're ju- he's jumping in there. I don't know. It's a lot, lot of pressure on a young man. And he would say years later that the, uh, uh, the time between – Hyde Park, and when he left the band, he got to the point where he was pretty sure, he didn't say this until years, years later, but he was pretty sure that he was going to die if he didn't leave the band because of the drugs that were involved by that point. So, But we get ahead of ourselves as we often do here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. 69 was a weird year for them because there was that change. They also uh, uh, did a legendary tour, which became... Uh, get your yayas out, which Lester Bangs calls one of the greatest live albums, if not the greatest live album of all time. You got the Gimme Shelter film was being done at the same time. Yeah. And then uh, they went to Altamont, which was kind of like uh, supposed to be the exclamation point on their year. And uh, I know you know a few things about that, uh, what happened at Altamont. Oh, yeah. The whole uh, situation with uh, the Hells Angels, pretty scary and pretty crazy. I didn't realize, though, some of the other band stuff that you had mentioned and we had talked about before as well. But you don't mess with the Hells Angels guys. And if you want to know inside what Hells Angels are about, read the Hunter S. Thompson novel about Hells Angels, about how he just kind of hung out with them as a journalist for years and got accepted into the gang. And then he wrote a book about it and then they were going to kill him. Well, you know, he got lucky that they didn't kill him. I think he did. Because I think he made a deal with them. I don't know enough about that to say a word, just in case any of my friends who ride are listening. All right, that's all I'm gonna say about that. But um, um, that moment took what had been a great year with Woodstock and a lot of the positive vibes out there, uh, societal change and things like that. Just put a dark cloud over it. I saw the movie years ago, but I'd have to revisit it. It's been decades. Now, while all this is going on, the uh, the Stones are busy uh, throughout 1969 when they're touring. They keep uh, recording songs and writing songs and not telling Decca Records about them. So they go um, in the studio to uh, Muscle Shoals Sound in Alabama on the QT. And while they're there, they start recording songs. And then, of course, they carted the masters with them on the road for songs like Brown Sugar, Dead Flowers, Wild Horses. And they use some of the Muscle Shoals boys to play, so it's not 100% them, but you can see on the credits uh, the guys who played, especially on uh, uh, Wild Horses. Uh, some neat stuff that they were doing, and it, it kind of showed that they were building off of Beggar's Banquet. Mm-hmm. And um, they held those songs while they were trying to fi- figure out what to put on Let It Bleed and how to fulfill their DECA contract. And that would lead to the next chapter in Rolling Stones history. And you had mentioned that they were shelving all these songs they were writing because they knew their contract with DECA was expiring. So they knew at that time 
in their business acumen that they were done with Decca Records and they were going to a bigger label. And this is the and move they, they knew, made. Yeah. They, and they knew they had songs that were next level shit, so they decided to stash a few things and then be ready. Now they didn't they didn't find that out at Decca till years and years later. But when the when the full stories start coming out, it was too late to make a difference anyway. Uh, and what they did was uh, start to create the base of what would be their partnership with Atlantic Records. How cool. And they started their own record company label. Yeah, yeah. Did what the Beatles did with Apple. And and they had se- their own logo. That was yeah. where the uh, the tongue logo debuted was when they debuted Rolling Stones Records. And all that. Isn't that something? Totally because, awesome. And, and another way the Beatles had an influence, even though the Stones did it their own way. So. Oh, you know there was competition between Mick and Paul. You know and John and all those sure. guys. You know that Friendly rivalry, but yeah. yes, rivalry nonetheless. They didn't compete. They, uh, so they do... They get through the whole process of setting up Rolling Stones records, and then they do um, Sticky Fingers, and then they get, get a little uh, Goat's Head Soup, and then they get It's Only Rock and Roll, and they are moving, man. They're on their own. They've created their own little universe there, and then they hit a wall. They hit a problem. There's always a problem, right? We, we saw this from the early days and uh, how they've overcome things and personal issues and drugs and arrests oh, yeah. in 67 and Redlands and all that stuff. That was something to help reinvent their 1967. I remember that. Oh, yeah. Uh, so they get to that point and Mick Taylor says, you know, after uh, exile on Main Street and spending all that time in the basement at Nelcote, you know, uh, it's, it's just a little bit too much for me, guys. And the story behind that, behind uh, the exile on Main Street sessions, when it comes to heroin, we should, that's a whole nother issue. I want another episode we should talk about sometimes. Yeah. It is deep. All I'd say is go to Keith Richards' book, Life, and you'll find out the details that there'll, that'll make you go, what? What? So that's where that's where the McTaylor exit comes in, and uh, we wouldn't find out that that's what was behind it for a long time. And then the Stones were scheduled to go into Musicland Studio in Munich uh, right after uh, Zeppelin finished their Presence record, but they didn't have their guitar player, and uh, they went in to do what they would uh, eventually come out with would be Black and Blue. And here's what Keith Richards said about that album. It was used for, quote, rehearsing guitar players. That's what that one was about. They were rehearsing guitar players while making an album. Who else could do that? I don't no, know. Nobody. So they had a ton of people show up for auditions, and only a few made the final uh, cut on the record. Uh, I think Ronnie Wood did uh, a couple little things, and then Wayne Perkins and, ha- and Harvey Mandel are the two main guitar players on uh, Black and Blue. But there's Woody on the cover, right? Yep. It's, you know, he was also on tour as a hired hand in 75. How about that? So then all of a sudden he's officially in the band and Ron Wood joins the Rolling Stones, uh, replacing Mick Taylor officially. And uh, the rest is definitely rock and roll history because that's uh, other than Wyman leaving in 92, 93. uh, That's been the lineup. And they went and got Daryl Jones when he left, found him out of all the auditions. And he's been there Mm -hmm. since Wyman left. So, you know, you start thinking about it. Keith once made the joke that, uh, you know, it's it's like the mafia. You don't get out, you know, only Mm -hmm. on a stretcher, you know, like, (laughs) and, 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 and since then it changed, of course, you know, because Wyman's been out of the stones now for forever, uh, 27 years, something like that. And, um. But that's, you know, that that's the lineup that they've taken into the future, so to speak, you know? But they take good care of their people, so there's... Why would you want to leave that game? No. Whatever I mean, they're doing, no. Whatever they're doing is right. They're taking care of their people. Absolutely. When you tour with the Rolling Stones, it's going... You're you're out there working at the highest level. 
uh, on one of the biggest stages in, in your business. So. Oh, absolutely. So they get to Ronnie and the band for the tour in 75, and uh, they have um, a special guest. When we talk about the great keyboard players who've played with the Rolling Stones, right? We were talking mm-hmm. about uh, Nicky Hopkins, Billy Preston, uh, of course, a star in his own right, Ian oh, McLaughlin yeah. from The Faces, and Chuck Lavelle and Jack Nietzsche. Uh, Chuck, by the way, has been there since 82. That's quite some time. Seriously. So they get they got Billy Preston on tour with them in 75, and uh, he's he gets the star turn. I never saw this with anybody before. Well, I didn't see the Stones before that, but I've never seen it since. Where the where somebody who's in the band with the Stones gets a star turn in the middle of the show, does a couple songs, does a little dance with Mick, and then boom, back to the fin- you know the the home stretch. I just watched the uh, L.A. Forum show from '75 on DVD that my buddy Brandon got for me, and it's just really incredible to see that little segment there. I suggest you check it out if you're out there listening. And uh, also on stage on that DVD, Ian Stewart in the back. Yep, he's there. I'm like, looking, who is it? Who is it? And I'm like, oh, it's Stu. Of course, it's Stu. He was always there. Man, that dude took a low-key role with them, even though he was a big player in their music and their sound and their growth. Like you said, they they took care of the the gang there in Rolling Stones' world. Always. Absolutely. Always. But, I mean... Ian obviously was fine with this role because he didn't really, he got to do his life his way. That's right. And he was always there on stage when the Stones played. It wasn't like they said, oh, this tour, we're going to leave you home. You know, he was with them all the way to the end of his life. And uh, that included 78 when they went out on tour for Some Girls. Uh, Ron's first full album in the band. Woody was first a full album as a member of the Rolling Stones. I saw them at JFK Stadium with the Kelly Boys. On a, it rained all night, but the field was wet, but we didn't care. We saw the Stones. Jagger had 103 fever, only played for an hour and five minutes, no encore. Crowd trashed the stage, didn't matter. Uh, it was just great stuff. And it would be a few years before I would see them again uh, because of my work schedule in those days before I got in radio. But uh, it was uh, a great show, and I saw Peter Tosh that day for the first time too. Pretty cool. I've never seen Peter Tosh. I would love to have seen him. Yeah, he was pretty. it was pretty awesome. Anyway, but that's kind of where the the relationship with Philadelphia and the Stones kicking off tour started because I think they felt bad that they had to do that it wasn't a choice thing you know he was really sick and so they opened uh, the next couple tours opened at JFK Stadium uh, in both cases uh, hosted by your radio your terrestrial radio home WMMR here in the Philadelphia area yeah. Have they figured out that that's where we're based yet? I guess they have. They Some should, of them yeah. Have. I yeah. think so, yeah, because we had Dave Usokin in. That's so right. That's Dave right. Usokin, yeah. The Hooters. So they did those uh, shows that opened in Philly and, 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 and those were, and then there was a gap there. And during that gap, there was some bad blood. I, I can't, I, we, we could probably do a whole thing. Bill German needs to come on and tell yeah. us what was going on back in those days in the 80s. Get the skinny. Lisa Robinson wrote about some of that in her books as well. So I'll have to yeah. see if I can find some of that information. Uh, future episodes. We're always working on future episodes. They gang. just come out of our mouths during show, during recording. So then Dirty Work shows up in 1986 and gets them back uh, into the swing of things. It was a three-year gap between records, and then they come back really in force in 1989 with Steel Wheels, again, opening in Philadelphia, two nights at the Vet. And that was incredible for me. One of the most fun times I ever had was with the Stones in 89. Two nights there. The, night, the first night, the power went off about 20 minutes into the show, right in the middle, pfft, you know, and it That's took crazy. him a couple minutes. They, you know, we blew up the, the Transformers, you know, and, uh, and then they went <laughs> on. And didn't blink. They just picked it up, kept going. I think Keith was still playing through the whole power. Wouldn't be surprised. Keeping his chops. 
And uh, so there was that. And then I, I was lucky enough to, uh, working for MMR, put together the Steel Wheels Express. They had just reopened the Atlantic City line from Philadelphia. So we took a whole train load of knuckleheads down for the show, uh-huh. got them tickets. And uh, the two nights down there, they had guest stars like uh, John Lee Hooker, Eric Clapton, Axl Rose, stuff like that. It was all taped and filmed for, uh, for pay-per-view, I think, back in those days, or it was live on pay-per-view. I also took on that tour, took a busload of uh, MMR fans up to um, Flushing Meadows, to Shea Stadium, to see uh, a show up there. So, Who was the band that opened up for them on that tour? Was it Living Color? It might have been. Part of it might have been Living Color. It might have been, yes. Okay. Um, that was the right time. Yeah. i got to go back and look at that, so that'll be a future podcast update. That was the, an opening night. You'll love this. Opening night is the night I met the Stones. To meet the Rolling Stones is cool enough. But on opening night of a tour in your hometown. What was that like? How would you well, describe it? Because there was a lot of pressure. They had they were under a lot of pressure at that time. My, my buddy John Langenstein, who was their personal security guy, he had done personal security for everybody from them to the Jackson Brown. He worked a lot for Sinatra. He worked for Frank for a little while. And I've been trying to get a hold of him. This is in the pre-cell phone days. So I was trying to get a hold of him or find out where he was. And he was trying to find me. Uh, the other the other guys uh, kind of directed us into what was then the press room at the vet. I was just thinking of something happened that day. And then we come back in uh, to the press room. We're all standing there. And I'm finally, I'm getting a little itchy. And I'm like, I'm going to I'm gonna go out in the hallway and just you know catch my breath. And as I'm walking towards the door, John walks in, backing in with his arms out. Make room, make room. And I go, and I tap him on the shoulder. What's going on? And just at that moment, Jagger goes by the left. Woody goes by the right. Charlie saunters in. Here comes on after one. They all come walking in right past me. And he goes, get here. And he turns around and he looks at me. He goes, I've been looking for you. So, And then the room just turned into this crazy swirling whirl uh, of activity. And I'm kind of inching my way, like kind of taking it all in a little bit. Uh, there was an incident where Woody tried to pick up my wife at the time. Insisted he knew her. Uh, it was pretty funny stuff. And that's hilarious. And then I end up in the corner, kind of standing there, and I'm looking at it all, taking it all in. And I kind of bump somebody to my shoulder, shoulder high. Somebody's shoulders is high. Me and I look to my right, and it's Jerry Hall, shoulder, eye to eye. And I got, and I look at her, and I say, "Oh, so nice to meet you." We say hello, and I go, "So is it like this every night?" She goes, "Oh yeah, he just loves himself." <laughs> That's hilarious. It was hysterical, man. But that was pretty cool. And then then we went on. I had the best time hanging out with Dave Vermeil's sons uh, in the mayor's box for two nights. Just crazy. We should do some stories from that one. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I don't know about you. Uh, how, how many times have you seen The Stones? Two. Two. And which eras? Uh, 2000s. 2000s. Okay, so because then the 90s, we don't, neither one of us have a lot of reference for the 90s. Um, I was caught up in Rockers World. I was going to see all the metal shows, mm-hmm. and they played a couple times in there, and I, did, I missed it, and then I moved away. And so the next time I think I saw them was when I was working at MGK on the 40 Licks tour. And that's a whole other story for another episode. Because they came in and they did, they would come into each city when they were doing the uh, tour, play the biggest outdoor arena, the indoor arena, and then someplace small. And then here they played the Tower Theater. And that was pretty cool. I didn't get to go to that one, though. No. Made my way into the other ones, much to their security team chagrin. Uh, but, was it uh, your buddy, John, who got you into those shows? No. Um, I have members cool. of the local crew union 
Excellent. Who, who had my back that day? They know that's who cool. they are, and that's all. That's, that's all. all that matters. Yeah. No, that's um, totally fine. You don't have to reveal any of that. That's all right. I go fast forward in a bigger bang. They put out the bigger bang record, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, I like a lot of the songs on there, and they come to play, and they're going to play at the center in South Philly, and they're saying, you're outside, you're not even getting in tonight, and I got a ticket last minute, and I broadcast from a roving location on my cell phone all night, doing my breaks from all over the, the center that night. That's awesome. Yeah, hasn't endeared me to them in the long run, but at least by the time they came last go-round, um, uh, a few years back now, they let me inside. <laughs> I guess they figured there was no keeping me out. That's but, good. Uh, but this is where they are. This is what they've been doing. They've been having this rock and roll adventure intermingling with all of us at various stages uh, in, in radio along the way. And, and now, even after all of that and Mick having heart valve replacement surgery. I know. This year. At 75. And he's going back out now. Did you see the video? Yeah. Pretty amazing. See him making moves like Jagger like two months after having a heart yeah. valve replacement. Wasn't totally it? like that dancing in the street video that he did with yes! uh, with uh, David Bowie. Did you ever see the dry video? Yes, it's amazing. It I never laughed so hard. hard. Oh. I know. You got to love it. It was a lot like that. And that's why I only watched it like once or twice and I had to move away. But they are. They're turning the tour inside out. Instead of ending in Chicago, they're going to start there. Yeah. And um, how are you, do you think they would be able to get it all in before the NFL season? I didn't think that they would. I and I was thinking about that stadium tour, and I was like, "What are they going to do? Go to baseball parks after they've all been eliminated?" Yeah. I mean, think about it. And you don't know, and you don't know where you got your original routing, and you have your original seating plans. And I'm just—it's amazing to me. And I guess Jagger's recovery and his uh, ability at his age to do it is part of what's really made it possible. And it doesn't seem like it's going to have any adverse effect on them or that they wouldn't let them do it. You know, they're insuring yeah. it. Oh, yeah. They're thank insuring God. the daylight. Thank God, them. because if they didn't insure this tour and he didn't have to have the physical, they might not have found the problem and he could have died right on stage. Yep, right and, in the middle of a song. And they don't want that. That's oh, not good for anybody. Oh, no, that's no bad bueno. for everybody. So, wow. and, and the fact that they've gotten approved to go back out says everything we've talked about through the years amongst ourselves in the world about... Mick and his workout regime and his, his, his nutrition regime yep. and all that other stuff, yoga and everything else that he does. It all paid off, and it really helped him in this situation. It, it, my mom survived an aortic dissection at 75. What? Exactly, exactly. That's a serious what? Yeah, like that's in rural, in rural areas, yeah. that's a 99.8% fatal. In urban areas, it's a 90% fatal, and the fact that it showed up on, on her heart test was a miracle, but... The doctor, when he talked to me before I had to fly from Philly to Denver, said if she has a healthy diet and she exercises, she has a very good chance of getting off the table. Uh, if I get her off the table, she will fully recover. And sure enough, wow. Wow. it's the diet and the exercise make a huge difference. We're getting a little bit off things, but I'm going to keep going. Now, Marisa, who was just in here while yeah. during uh, her break um, helping people, tells me the same thing that she's a nurse and she's a nurse consultant and what she does is she talks to people and she tells me about the, the people who are 85 all the time she tells me just general things like about people who are 85 and they uh, they do yoga they work out they walk they play golf yeah. she said a lot of people who are in their 80s and 90s play golf at least once or twice a week and it helps to keep them mobile 
Yeah. And and so Milwaukee. you got to look at the Jagger. He hasn't slowed down in 56 years of doing this stuff, 57 wow. years of doing this stuff. He has, and, and if anything, he's gotten better at it because he had to. Yeah. So I think people are going to go see a really great show, and uh, I'm glad that he's in good health. I think the band's going to be fantastic. It's been a couple of years since they've done anything here, and the crowd in Philadelphia probably—they're just going to lose yeah. it in June. It's yeah, they're going to lose their minds in July. Ju- July. Now it's in July, yeah, it's in July. The I fact that it was only—the fact that it was only postponed a month because of a heart valve surgery—seriously, mm-hmm. that well, says a lot about that says a lot about Mick Jagger and his alien blood. <laughs> deal with the devil i agree with you though that uh but the, by by basically candle using like doing the lever thing where they flip-flop the whole thing back and started with chicago that's the that's what really made that whole thing work with getting it all in and and, and to be able to do it and give him enough time mm-hmm. to continue to recover so here we are 21st century all these years later and the Rolling Stones and the who's wrapping up, you know, this year, McCartney's still out there, but mm-hmm. the Stones have done it straight through with changing personnel and all they've been through that we outlined here through the decades darkly. Yep. Um, and here they are still doing it and on and getting ready to go out on tour again. And I don't see them stopping in the foreseeable future. Well, they've There's always st- said um, it's only the Stones if Charlie's in the seat. And I think if Charlie, he's tried to quit a couple times and said he was done, and they still got him back in. So in some ways, it's really up to him. But, you know, I think we are in agreement here. The the Glimmer Twins plus Charlie is pretty much what's got to be there. Yep. You need all three of them or you can't have the Rolling Stones. It's a rock and roll circus. It's the Fantastic Rolling Stones, episode 10 of the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Man, this is a lot of fun. This is a uh, blast. We, we seem to cover a lot of territory with these things, but um, what I want to do with the Stones is what we've talked about doing with other bands and uh, go back and dig into some of the things that happened and maybe spend a little more time on them uh, as we go through our crazy podcast thing here. Oh, yeah. It, I would love to dig in deeply, especially the 60s Stones, where they went from schoolboys even though some of those songs were dark like mother's little helper about the pills and yeah that was part of the transition or the the dark side of the beaver cleaver lifestyle that we we were all society was living they were were writing about it whereas the beatles were a lot more happier and i want to hold your hand and different sides of the same coin for all these years yes the good boys and the bad boys and that's part of what rock and roll is all about too we continue to explore, and we ask you to give us your feedback and uh, your input. Uh, post, Feel free to post on our Facebook page, Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, or Gmail, imbalancedhistory at gmail.com, or you can visit our website, imbalancedhistory.com. Yeah, it's there anytime for you to check out any of the episodes, so just slide on by. Well, that's going to do it for the, our first episode of the Rolling Stones, our 10th episode. Dude. Good job. We're getting there. One step at a time, yeah. ladies and Baby steps moving forward. It's a production of Dark Doc Media. I'm Ray Koob. I'll catch you with my buddy. Marcus in the Darkest. Next time on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 